It's March 22nd, 2022, and we're talking about the week's newsworthy headlines in the world of acquisition. And Matt McGregor is joining me again, as always. So thanks for being here, Matt. The first one we got, Cyber Command prepares to gain significant budget control from FedScoop. So the FY22 NDAA gives the commander of Cybercom responsibility to control the planning, programming, budgeting, execution system. So basically, you know, getting the requirements funded um, into into a program that's kind of now under the purview of Cybercom. And they did have some, it wasn't as much kind of like acquisition and budget authority as SOCOM, but they had some. Uh, they had an interesting figure here. I wonder if you could you know, let me know whether it made sense or not. They said the commander today only has oversight over 600 million from an overall Department of Defense IT budget around 40 billion. Um, So I don't think Cybercom is going to be programming 40 billion worth of IT budget, right? Uh, So do you have any additional insight on, on what's going on with Cybercom? No, I think I'd have to pull up the, see where they're getting the 40 billion. I have to imagine that includes you know, like the cyber cybercom enterprise. Um, you know, like the the infrastructure and all the networks. Like it's more than just like the you know, sort of like cyber capabilities. It's probably all, a lot of the other stuff. Uh, but there are. I mean, I will say the even the JICWA programs, the uh, uh, the large like uh, the JCAP and JCC2 unified platform. Um, you know, the, those ones are um, are rather big programs. So they're they're kind of. There is kind of a lot of money there, so I can see some of that that's not in their control that now will be, you know, moving under their control, at least on the funding side. So so some of that could be accounted for in there, but not not forty billion. So I have to imagine that a lot of that's like infrastructure and personnel and all that kinds kinds of stuff. I think they just looked at like what's the total IT budget and presumed maybe cyber <laughs> might have. Um, but I would like to see I mean six hundred million is not insignificant. Uh, we'll, we'll see like how how much that gets expanded from their mission um, and whether they kind of pull that away from other places. They said they're going to start building their POM, the Program Objective Memorandum, in 2024. And it looks like they have also created, and I didn't know this, they created a Program Executive Office, Cyber, within Cyber Command. Uh, so that's pretty big news as well. Yeah, they've, they've been playing around with a lot of different paradigms, like a joint, you know, Cyber Management Office, you know, Joint Joint Cyber uh, Integration Office. Uh, they they sort of been playing around with a lot of different things. It, it, this one is a little strange to me, only because the PEO is a little bit buried in the in the organizational structure. Um, it, it, I looked at it sort of recently and was sort of like, eh, why is it why does it fall under there? But but anyway, it um, that's the way the the Cybercom, which you know, Cybercom is a is a combatant command, and so it essentially you know has all of the typical J staff. So it is interesting that they really do have, will have a lot more control over their destiny here. So a lot of the complaints from like the cyber mission forces and stuff has been that they're not getting, you know, all the different tools and the, you know, injects and all the, all the cyber defense and offense things that they need. Like it's not, they're not getting it fast enough. So now the, you know, J8 essentially will have, or I think it's a J9, the J9 will control most of this uh, prioritization. And so they, uh, yeah, the COCOMs will have control of their destiny. You know, something that I'm sure into a paycom if they were able to get, you know, uh, you know, all the PDI funds as well, as well as like, you know, a bunch of extra, you know, billions thrown on top and they can control where it goes. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a good situation for Cybercom. So it'd be interesting to see where they go with it. Well, they have their own acquisition executive or who do they yeah. report to? 
Now they will. So the, the JICWA programs will still stay with the Army and Air Force. Um, J, um, JCC2, Joint Cyber Command and Control, and Unified Platform State of the Air Force. Uh, JCAP, um, Joint Combat Access Program. And then there's a there's actually a training one too, for, I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's on the Army side. So the Army has a couple, the Air Force has a couple. Those will stay with those PEOs uh, at the services. They'll stay and be executed, but the funding will, will go to CyberComp. So the fact that you have funding will give you, you know, a little bit more, maybe controller. Uh, you'll have to, you know, they'll have to be a little bit more responsive if they're not uh, already. But, um, but yeah, for the rest of the things, the, basically this acquisition executive will be able to go procure what they need to procure. Oh, cool. It, it, I guess they only have one PEO, so maybe yeah. PEO equals SAE, you know, for that. Yeah. Yeah, or I don't know how they call them the acquisition executive. That's sort of what, like, just that stuff does, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, I guess it's kind of cool, you know, more – and I think we've talked about this a lot, you know, like, maybe the, the combat commands, they need their own kinds of budgets to close the seams kind of left over uh, by the services. You know, Cybercom and SOCOM might be – you know, out and ahead, kind of leading some things for their own needs, but whereas the others kind of get it received to them. But, you know, like the Space space Command is not going to have their own, right? Like it seems like Space Command and Space Systems Command are kind of just like tethered at the hip in, in some ways. Space Command is an odd one. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the weird thing is that there's not a like a um, there's not like a cyber force. There's not like a cyber military force. Like I think the analogy would be is if there was a cyber military uh, service, and you know, and then then you had cybercom. Like space space is kind of in that domain a little bit, where it's like, yeah, you have space force, but then you really only have one major cocom that's like the direct user of your equipment. Um, you know, but the army and navy do have some satellite assets, so it's not it's not exclusive. To, it hasn't those haven't moved over yet to space force, so there's a little bit of divergence right now. But the the plan is right for space force to have everything. So, yeah, it, it's it's a little bit of a different relationship between spacecom and space force versus like cybercom, just kind of out on their own. Yeah, it see it feels weird. <laughs> you know, they're gonna have to a lot of like kind of cross functional support, I guess, and matrixed, you know, communications. So. Hopefully that, that works out for them. Uh, next one we got here. China outpaces U.S. tenfold in hypersonic missiles, U.S. general. Uh, this is from Asia Financial. And nothing really new here, right? Uh, so uh, General Glenn Van Herc, commander of U.S. North American Aerospace Defense Command, basically just said, you know, that China is aggressively pursuing hypersonic capability tenfold to what we have done. And then they kind of quote some older stuff from Heighton, about how China has conducted, you know, hundreds of tests while we've only done nine in the same stretch. Uh, but one of the interesting things here, for me at least, was that uh, media reports say U.S. military experts are still trying to understand how managed, how China managed to do this in terms of R&D um, pushing forward on hypersonics. However, the recent defection to MI6 of a top-ranking Chinese scientist in Hong Kong could help solve that mystery. So looks like we got a little bit of espionage games going on, but at least this one's working on our side. Yeah, that one caught my attention too. I was like, "Well, well done, well done, MI6." Have we uh, learned some learned some interesting things there? Kind of amazing that that's actually like been publicized. So, yeah, usually you know it always feels like it goes the other way, and like China's like super locked down; it's impossible to get in there. But you know, maybe you know folks have ideological reasons for defecting as well. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one thing about this article that I think, you know, you have to appreciate is, you know, we've talked, I think, like, in, you know, past podcast about the fact that, um, you know, Aero, the Air Force hypersonic program, you know, has had a couple of failures. You know, it seems a little sloppy, um, you know, that they you know never really got off the plane in some cases. But, you know, the fact that, that China's done hundreds means that, you know, maybe that happened to them like 10 or 20 times. Like maybe they had a bunch of stupid sort of things that they had to work through learning that they had to do that. Like, Oh, I just didn't think about this. Oh, we didn't think about that. Like, you know, like you have to actually go through some of those. And it just seems like we do a hypersonic test once every blue moon. And the fact that, you know, what, at least if you, you know, if you, this article, article is accurate, China's done hundreds in the past number of years. And, you know, we're just kind of on the fringes. So, not a big mystery. I mean, I don't know that this scientist will probably have, you know, will probably be able to say like, yeah, we did hundreds of tests and we learned a lot. That's why we're, that's why we got ahead of the game. <laughs> and maybe there's not uh, some big mystery here, but. Yeah. I think Bill LaPlante today, I think he actually pointed to that, right? He was yeah. like yeah. the Chinese, they just kept at it where we had a couple failures a decade ago and we kind of stopped. Right. And, and the difference is kind of stark now because they've been able to stick to it. So if we jump off the bandwagon, you know, like, will we get over, will we ever get over that hump? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like uh, DOD has a problem of like, um, uh, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time. And I feel like, you know, the last 20 years with like the Iraq war and Afghanistan war, we just really like deprioritize a lot of these things. And so, yeah, while we were kind of doing our counterterrorism thing, China was, you know, advancing all this tech, um, but I think one, one thing that's interesting that I took was the fact that, you know, we've seen recently China and Russia kind of, you know, really partnering up a lot more than they have in the past. They, you know, they still don't love each other, but they definitely are cooperating more on the, on the technology side. And the fact that, you know, Russia actually does have a lot of experience. It sounds like China's, you know, gotten a lot more experience. But the fact that Russia maybe is has been contributing behind the scenes to, to some extent, and, and maybe they will contribute more. They, they know a lot about missiles. They know a lot about uh, about that. So the fact that, um, you know, maybe this is like one area where they can even synergize even more uh, given given their past experience and the fact that China, you know, is, is investing a lot. So something to watch there, it seems. The Air Force just soared past an electric aircraft milestone. So what's been going on here is the Air Force's Agility Prime program where they give some money, but mostly they're given you know, accreditation, you know, and uh, test ranges and stuff like that to help these commercial companies get to electric eVTOL, you know, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And I guess the milestone here is that we have Air Force aviators for the first time actually piloting these electric aircraft. And um, so it comes from a number of companies, the ones that I'm pretty sure like Beta Technologies was highlighted in the articles. But Joby has also been pretty far along in their their uh, development. There's also Kitty Hawk, Whisk, and Archer. And one of the uh, quotes here from the test pilot is, if you've driven an electric car or even a golf cart, uh, when you put the pedal down, you get instant torque. The exact same thing it is happening when we hit that thumb wheel. We go from 0 to 100 instant power. Um, and it's also pretty quiet. So um, interesting stuff. Glad to see it's moving along and hope uh, the the prime efforts kind of expand out. What, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, so agility prime, when it was first stood up, it was, you know, Dr. Roper had a, had a larger vision for it. It was, 
I always sort of questioned it, and maybe I still question it a little bit, but, you know, it was more of, like, a national economic thing. It was more to, like, basically the military helping to advance technology that, um, you know, ha- had a lot of application to the commercial sector. So that was a little bit of the focus. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, later in the article, uh, you know, they, they do talk about how this, you know, this prototyping, it basically gives them a chance to look at it and say, what is the military application? Uh, how could this, how could this be used? And, and, you know, these pilots kind of hypothesize like, oh, maybe we could move cargo from one base to another. Maybe there's a military mission. We can, you know, orbit and put some sensor pod on this. Um, you know, maybe we can sort of, uh, um, you know, figure out what that military use case is. So it is kind of interesting. Like they're flying around up there and then they're trying to like figure out, um, you know, well, how could we actually use this in the military? So it's, it's, a, it kind it's of, kind, it's me. kind of what we're talking about though, right? Like you got to experiment with the thing and get the con ops down before you decide what the, the final requirement is. And I think, yeah, you know, I one that they're like always it. talking about is medical evac, but um, there's, I'm sure there's tons of other things. Yeah, I'm sure they'll figure something out, but it is kind of interesting. Like, there's pilots definitely seem to be having a good time up there. There's like huge smiles on their faces flying up. Yep. Uh, so the next one we got here: Washington to supply Ukraine with air environment drones. And so the White House here disclosed this is about a week ago now that uh, Ukraine they gave 800 million in the form of direct transfers of equipment, and that's building on top of 200 million from before. And air environment switchblades were confirmed uh, as part of that, which are, of course, the uh, the loitering munitions or suicide drones, right? Um, and we've talked about them quite a bit here. Uh, but one of the things that the company's talking about, which is interesting, is that they're saying that they're actually competing. This switchblade drone is actually a competitor to the tactical missile market, like the Hellfire missile, the Javelin, the TOW. Um, so... I kind of agree with him, and I, I tend to think like there's all these like competition adjacent areas where we think we're, we have like this massive monopoly or duopoly kind of going on, but some of these new emerging technologies are actually like competition adjacent and can kind of maybe take away some of those missions or you know they can't do everything a Hellfire is going to do, but they they have some similar attributes. Well, yeah, and I think I mean I think one of the challenges. I think they actually have an advantage over some of these other ones. Uh, tow missiles may be a little different, but you know, on the um, on the Hellfires, I mean, you have to launch them from a, a platform that uh, you know you have a laser, you know, typically laser, uh, maybe acquired like a you know laser target or something. I'm not sure about the javelin, but but you know, uh, you, you it's not like the switchblade, which can just be kind of launched, you know, really easily, um, you know, can quickly go up and then loiter around. You know, you kind of you know, these other munitions, I believe you actually need to have like a, an active target and you need to be engaged on it. So it's pretty impressive. Uh, I've seen a couple articles now about how this is really driving the Russians nuts because with the uh, switchblade 600, which is like 33 pounds, um, can loiter for about 40 minutes. Um, you know, they just don't see it coming and it can actually take out at armored vehicles and, you know, what they say is other hardened targets or anti-armor, uh, they have anti-armor warheads. So yeah, that sounds pretty, uh, Sounds pretty devastating. Uh, if you're if you're not expecting anything, you don't hear anything coming. There's no helicopters or drones in sight, and all of a sudden, uh, it, you know, something comes crashing down on you. Yeah, you got the well, maybe the the light war, right? Like, ooh, <laughs> that's basically <laughs> what you. Hear. Uh, yeah, that's true. But on, on the news, Air Environment stock shot up ten percent, and I took a look at where they've been at. 
Um, Pre-invasion, it was $56 a share, and now it's $98 a share. <laughs> so that's a pretty pretty sweet uh, growth there in a month, but uh, Air Environment's kind of recovered a lot of what it's lost. It was actually closer to $150 a share um, at the start of 2021. So uh, they've, they've taken a big hit, especially, I think, with the, the, the rate hike. Maybe they're kind of leveraged, potentially, in the rate hike. Definitely, there was a huge drop on their stock. But, you know, I guess good news for, from the war for them, at least um, when you're a military contractor. Well, I think also, though, as soon as like now that now that, they're, you know, we've kind of talked about how like these weapons are being used, these switchblades are being used in ex- to some exercises and things like that. But the military really hasn't committed to them. So, you know, I do hope that like watching what the Ukrainians can actually achieve with this, you know, the, at least the army or somebody starts to get in on this and say, actually, maybe we should start stocking up on them. And I'm sure that'll, you know, that'll get them back to. Uh, good, good, well, I think, good. you know, the government's, I mean, they're looking at them. We saw they them being are. getting launched off of the USV stuff from the Navy. And yep, yep. I think they're also too blanched from like aircraft. And they've been testing those on future vertical lift or something like that, right? Um, yeah, I'm, there's, I'm I mean, sure there's it's all, all sorts of. It's all been like testing, though, and like prototyping. Yeah, yeah so. Until we actually see uh, see a big order come through, but air environment to me seems like they have like a very interesting set of assets <laughs> and like things that they're building. And I think I remember, if I remember correctly, they have been like prototyping one type of aerial vehicle a year, essentially, which is pretty amazing. Hmm. So yeah, that is well. Let's move from newer small tech to older large tech. The littoral disaster. <laughs> Navy wants to retire 10 littoral combat ships, according to report. And so, of course, it's the Freedom Class that's really been kind of under fire here, which was actually, you know, I guess when I looked at this program several years ago, I kind of expected the Independence Class because it looks different. You know, it looks a little bit more Zoomwalty. I expected that one to have the problems, but it's really the Freedom Class that's been having the problems. And in particular here, it's the combining gear that connects the gas turbines to the uh, main diesel engines and those haven't been working um, to get to that 40 knot requirement, which was kind of potentially absurd and created all sorts of uh, engineering trade-offs to get there. But these uh, LCSs on the diesel engines alone can only go 10 to 12 knots. Uh, so unless they do the whole combining gear fix, which the USS Minneapolis St. Paul has done. It was the first to do that, um, that can rectify this issue. But it looks like the Navy's not too keen on... Um, you know, doing these mods on, on the rest of this, on the rest of the ship. So another, another, uh, I guess, article just bashing on the LCS. <laughs> another nail in the LCS coffin. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting given what the Navy's planning to do with, uh, or trying to do with like retiring these as early as possible. I'm a little surprised they're not publicizing what that modification is costing. Um, it sounds like if it's going to take years, it sounds like it's probably, I think one of the, descriptions of it was he almost had to like rebuild the ship to some extent uh, in order to implement the fix so um so it's probably a pretty astronomical number um so kind of interesting but you know one thing i did not know was that you know a lot of the a lot of the talk with the littoral combat ship was that like in the persian gulf and you know in the in you know in the sort of uh you know middle eastern region like these things would be really useful especially like for the for the iran threat but apparently they have never sailed in the Middle East. So 
neither the freedom or the independence class types, which is just kind of kind of amazing given how how much uh, how much operations the Navy does over there. So so yeah, so that's uh, definitely you know definitely sort of uh, making it uh, not attractive if the Navy is not even willing to deploy it. Uh, in a real way and that, you know, they're not, they're not getting what they wanted from the modular mission packages. They're, you know, they, the sustainment costs are, you know, way higher and, you know, they're not able to get that, like swap out, you know, swap out the different things that they wanted to swap out. So yeah, sounds like LCS is, you know, not, uh, not, not, not going to be the the future of the Navy there. I guess the, uh, the JLTVs and and the frigates are going to have to be the homes for the the naval strike missile. <laughs> they just yeah. recently went all that did all that work to integrate it. Um, well, well, I mean, yeah, the frigates or the you know if we can finally get the the LUSVs you know going, we can you know stick those stick those on there. Yeah, there's no reason, no reason they couldn't. True that. Startup whose AI will help track drug runners' boats gets five million in funding from Fortune. And this company here is Modern Intelligence. They've been working with the U.S. Navy on maritime surveillance technology, particularly in, I guess, like counter drug type work. But they're looking to grow there. And one of the things that uh, the CEO is saying here is that historically, a lot of the companies have been trying to lock customers into these vertical silos and they can't easily like get data or integrate sensors from one to another. One of the things that he was saying that was pretty interesting was, you know, like this sensor fusion. Actually, you know, on um, Heidi Shoes, her her new 14 critical modernization priorities, there was three that were defense unique or defense led hypersonics, directed energy. And then she also she had in there um, sensor fusion. And I was like, that seems like commercial software, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) especially with like, you know, like self-driving cars and all this stuff. Like they're better at that. And what they're saying here was like, actually most of what the military does is just like when they have multiple sensors, they just look at which sensor is kind of like getting the highest probability of detection or something like that. And then they go to that one rather than fusing them and getting like a joint probability or something like that. Um, So I thought it was pretty interesting here. Modern intelligence, they seem pretty small, but uh, they just got Ellen Lord on their advisory board, and Jason Yosinki, co-founder of Uber's AI Research Lab, as well as Jacqueline Tam. So, yeah, he's got a pretty good crew there. Any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think I think I think you said it well. I mean, I think the uh, you know the also the vision, right? The vision for the company was that they, you know, they can seamlessly sort of come in and without like a ton of integration work, um, you know, be able to kind of overlay this capability. And, and sort of, you know, maximize what that platform, what that system is already doing. So, so yeah, I think it's a, a really powerful capability. And um, I think it sort of upends some of the, uh, some of the AI kind of efforts that are going on now, which is like, oh, we need, you know, gazillion gigabytes of data, we need like, 5 million, you know, pictures of, of this object, which is sort of what, you know, Project Maven and some similar projects are, you know, primarily doing. And sort of takes a, a different approach that, um, you know, so they're trying it out right now with the maritime maritime targets, which is a really key, I think, uh, key capability to show. And then, you know, hopefully they'll, you know, they'll move on to some other things. So, yeah, it's a, it looks really promising. Yeah, one of the things he says here um, is that an analyst might simply be able to type something like, alert me to any ship within this operational area over 30 meters in length. And, you know... 
or show me all air bases in Western Russia where a T-160 aircraft is currently on the ground, uh, which would be, that would be super sweet, right? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, that's the dream. I mean, because like right now it's like these Intel analysts are like scrubbing through data just like, I mean, it's almost like old school, like almost looking at like photographs, right? I mean, they're doing it faster, but it's like a lot of manual labor, a lot of like, you know, eyeballs. So yeah, to be able to get get the Intel analyst like, the ability to crunch this faster, get that target information. You know, when you think about a war in the Pacific, the, the, the one problem that the U.S. military will have is with all of the assets that China has is being able to see a target, get that data immediately from that, send that back to a weapon system that can actually target it and deploy a weapon against it. Uh, that chain, that's all about what JADC2 is about, right? That kill chain. And so getting that faster and faster, you're going to need a system like this I think to get the speed that you need to, because by the time right now, by the time the target gets to targeting information gets back and finally flows and stuff like that, that targets like, you know, like, um, you know, 10 miles away or whatever. So, so yeah, this will be, this will be pretty, uh, pretty important in the JADC2 fight. Yeah. And it could be, you know, it's like one of those cross cutting technologies it could be like a plug-in for everything, but my under, my understanding, let me know if this gels with your understanding. I think the way he was talking, instead of having like one big, giant AIML, you know, model with billions of parameters try that needs to be able to detect everything. Like he modularizes it where it's like you have an AI model that looks for these types of lines and then at a higher level, these types of boxes and shapes and then at a higher level, you know, like looking for tanks and then at a higher level, like specific types of tanks. And so it's like this modular structure as opposed to just like one model that rules them all and then the challenge becomes how do you compress all of that and make it like, you know, decision time relevant? Yeah, I think that's the understanding that, and that the fact that there is a, a baseline of understanding there that, yeah, if you if you decide to go after a new target so that, you know, it's not like you have to train it from scratch, like start from the very, very basic and be like, and here is a bus and here, you know, this is a square bus and this is a slightly more rectangular bus, you know, it's like, instead of doing that, it's like it already sort of has a base of knowledge. So it's, it's more adaptable as well. So I, I think that's maybe the only other thing I'd, I'd say is that's my understanding of, of it. Well, let's move into the JADC2 land, Pentagon's JADC2 strategy, more questions and answers breaking defense. The eight page summary document essentially defines JADC2 and sets out ambitious goals but provides little new insight in, into how the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military services are actually going to make it work. This strategy lays out three guiding C2 functions of sense, make sense, and act, and an additional five enduring lines of effort. And these lines of effort are uh, data enterprise, human enterprise, technical enterprise, um, nuclear C2 and communications, and then uh, mission partner information sharing. So, yeah, I, I, I opened up the, the summary document and kind of took a look through. It was, it was pretty high level, and, you know, there was words in there, but <laughs> wasn't a lot of detail. Um, I guess that's the way it was supposed to be because it's a strategy, but still. Um, any thoughts? I don't know. It is kind of interesting. I mean, there's a JADC2, you know, uh, core functional team that's uh, at the joint staff that you know, supposed to be managing that, but I think everyone sort of agrees. And I think Todd Harrison's written some, you know, pretty good stuff on this, that uh, it seems pretty disjointed. Um, the services just do not seem to really be talking to each other. 
Um, I think Project Convergence is doing a lot of good exercises. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that is actually resulting in sort of joint solutions. I know they're trying to pull in partners and some of the future stuff that they're doing and pulling some of the other services, but the Navy really seems out on their own on this with Overmatch and ABMS is, you know, doing different things. And so, yeah, uh, Gen C2, it does not give you a warm fuzzy. I'm not sure the strategy sort of provides a lot more structure around that. Um, maybe just emphasizes certain things. So maybe this will create some focus if, if it's, if it's not, if some of the services are not pursuing these things. And so maybe that will, uh, will help reinforce what the CFT is trying to achieve. But yeah, I'm not, this doesn't seem like a, a huge thing right now. I guess in the end, I'm kind of glad it wasn't, you know, a 500 page document of like <laughs> this, that, and the other right. functions will be delivered in this, that, in that year, you know, like, so, um, but that's the kind of thing Congress would look for, right? Like they, if I feel like if, if uh, the department gave them, you know, this massive plan and everything to go with it, they would kind of open up the coffers for it. But we're kind of in that weird phase of if it's undefined and you're trying to let it, you know, figure out what you need to do and let it evolve, then people are skeptical of it and they won't fund it. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know with Overmatch, like how much the Navy is sharing uh, with Congress. Um, I Convergence, I have to imagine that a lot of people on the Hill are sort of like, you know, what are we doing with all these exercises and when are we actually going to buy some stuff? Um, yeah, ABMS, I think the Air Force has tried to make that as clear as possible, but, you know, it's been pretty dynamic and stuff too. So, yeah, I, I wonder how much longer uh, some staffers on the Hill will, will uh, you know, will tolerate this before they start cracking down on, uh, you know, okay, we want to, we want a DOD plan. We want everything else, everything laid out. And yeah, we'll see how, we'll see when that happens, probably in the near future. Inside the U.S. military and defense sectors, uh the VC-backed companies getting jobs and big contractors funding startups. So over the past couple of years, crunch-based data um, shows that the five largest defense contractors have backed over 30 known rounds. Of the groups, the most active has been Lockheed Martin. The standouts include Whisk Arrow, and that's one of those eVTOLs in Agility Prime. They raised $450 million from Boeing. Epirus, or Epirus, um, that's a... Right. Um, they've been doing that microwave drone, uh, counter drone technology. And I think, uh, what was his name? Uh, Mark Esper. He's now over there, right? Um, drone zapping weapons, they call it. They got $200 million in a Series C from T. Rowe Price, but General Dynamics Land Systems was part of that. Um, their current valuation is $1.35 billion. So there we go. We, I, I guess we got a, another billion dollar defense startup, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, I I don't think I realized that the that some of these some of these uh, big primes were as as much in the venture venture world. I guess it makes sense. I mean, because they're you know they they're trying to make they do a lot of internal investments, and so it kind of makes sense that they would they would be looking for uh, for ways to get gain growth and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, these are these look like promising. Uh, all these are probably promising, uh, you know, promising military applications. Uh, maybe the self-flying electric cars. Maybe Boeing has a has a vision there for a sort of airport, uh, some type of some type of a, uh, you know, maybe domestic domestic uh, airport application there. I'm not sure, but, but well, yeah. they've been at it for a little while. I think they were investing heavily in. I think it was like Aurora, which was another 
I think it was eVTOL as well, or and they also did a bunch of composites. And I think Aurora has been not doing very well. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> I'm not I'm not really sure what's up with that. Maybe they're diversifying. Maybe that one didn't work out for them. Well, I mean, the whole self flying thing is is the same to encounter a lot of obstacles, right? I mean, I think Amazon had a vision for like you know, but at this point, you would have you know drones delivering all your packages. So yeah, it sounds like there's definitely a barrier there. I mean, FAA is not a uh, is not a you know very um, you know it's a very conservative organization, I guess the best way to say it. So yeah, there's probably some real challenges with this. With this. By the way, I would assume Shield AI must be over a billion dollar valuation i think they've yeah, they've definitely. raised many hundreds of millions so yeah they, they definitely are they're definitely over a billion yeah i would like to there needs to be just, just a list of those guys so, you know like you know because people keep saying well the only ones are enduro palantir and spacex and they had billion billionaire founders but that doesn't seem to be true anymore yeah it seems, seems like uh, some of these guys are are growing i mean i think the i think the key is that they really are like we talked about that the I mean, I, honestly, I think aerovir environment could could get there too. Yeah, uh, they're, they're basically finding these little niches where uh, they're not really a startup, though. But <laughs> air environment, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I would count it's them small. as kind of like that non traditional, non traditional, yeah. yeah. Even though they're all on the stock market and everything, but yeah, but uh, yeah, they're finding their niches, these niches, niches that are you know that the primes haven't been going after and that the government hasn't kind of been savvy enough to ask for, for requirements on and uh yeah kind of showing showing what can be done so yeah the other one that they've mentioned here was slingshot aerospace which you know has that slingshot machine that will hurl things into space um that we talked <laughs> about a while ago they got yeah. 25 million this month i suppose from uh, lockheed martin and also includes the air force and nasa as the as customers but um yeah i mean i think overall they said 30 rounds but if you think about all of the companies that have received defense, like if you just look at AFWorks, you know, there's probably many dozens, right? So, you know, 30 of them being participated by the large, you know, defense contractors might not be all, a big fraction overall of all the money that's gone into defense, you know, VC type stuff. Yeah. Uh, by the way, on Slingshot, I think I think this one is more on the... Uh, Aerial and drone signal processing and analytics, AI analytics. I don't think, I don't think that one is actually the, uh, the, uh, the one that, that that flings it into space. At least I was just reading on that one because the way that they described it, I was sort of wondering about like a space domain awareness sort of mission. But, but yeah, no, exactly. Um, oh yeah, you're right. Good, good call there. What is the slingshot? What is the space slingshot? I was trying called? to. Yeah, I was trying to remember that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I can't remember the name because it's so awesome. But because uh, it wasn't really a slingshot, it, like spins around super fast, right? And then just like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, a, like yeah, it's like a centrifuge or something. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh... all right, well, drones could be key to solving one of the U.S. Air Force's biggest training challenges, and this is kind of talking about Blue Force Technologies, which is which had been on the on the Acquisition Talk podcast recently. Um, they got a $9 million contract to develop uncrewed air vehicle for the adversary air mission at air um, from AFRL. And so this kind of, I guess, is their bridge, right? Like they had the Cyber Phase 2 and now they're kind of bridging that valley of death here with $9 million. 
Um, hope we'll see what that does. But over the next 12 months, they're going to take their Fury UAV and kind of, I guess, like build that out um, for AFRL. And they're going to use it as a fifth gen adversary um, air mission capability. So uh, if they can replace 10 or 15 percent of F-35s being used in those slots, you're really going to, you know, gain some some savings on the back end if they can if if this UAV has fairly low observability but nothing like an F-35 I suppose but I believe it can do quite a bit um so you know looking forward to seeing you know this this UAV kind of get in the mix with the, the Kratos's and the others yeah I, I have to be I have to be honest I yeah I, lo- I love the podcast I, I really like these guys vision and they clearly they know a lot more about this than I do but I, I was a little bit confused about how it would emulate fifth gen in terms of you know kind of electronic warfare and and some of the things that the f-35 would would definitely use in a fight to um to sort of counter and i guess i guess maybe that's the point is like you do need you'll still need the f-35s to kind of do some of those things and this would just be more of like a low radar cross-section uh you know maybe flying some of the similar kind of uh, flight characteristics um but uh but it talked about using all like commercial sensors and things like that so um, so yeah, it'll only be able to get so far with fifth gen. I mean, fifth gen doesn't stealth is not the biggest part of fifth gen. It's, it's, it's a lot of the other pieces of it. So, well, I'd be, I would be interested to see, I mean, I think they're talking about commercial sensors, but they're going to have like a standard interface and then they can have any kind of payload that, that meets that like size, weight, power constraint. So maybe they could integrate, you know, you won't be able to do all the things cause it's just a much smaller platform. But maybe you can do kind of like, elect, you could have a pretty good electronic warfare and different types of sensors on there. You could have like munitions on there and stuff, like different swap in, swap outs. Yeah, I don't know. I think it will. I think they would. I think they're going to have some real integration challenges as they try to take some of these things that were developed by, by Lockheed and Northrop and BAE and stuff. And yeah, it, true. Yeah, but but yeah, I, I hope they, I hope it I hope it works out. I mean, I, I thought uh, Mike Mike Benitez made a a good point. And I really hope he's right about this, that this is sort of the entryway for pilots to become uh, more, f- more familiar, more trusting, more sort of supportive of right. manned, unmanned teaming. I really hope that's true. Um, I guess, I guess we'll see if, if, if that, uh, if that pans out, but that, that would be good. Uh, was that Mike Benitez or Andrew Van Timmeren who was on the podcast? I guess they're both oh. probably saying the same. Shame. Yeah, maybe, maybe probably, I saw Mike's, it's true. <laughs> I think right? I saw Mike's post about it. I think maybe Mike posted about it. So oh, he did yeah. have a post on that, right? Yeah, so it may have been both of those guys saying that, yeah. All right, cool. Well, that's all we got time for today. Matt, thanks for joining me, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.